It's awesome that we can worship the Lord through singing songs, we can worship the Lord through generosity, and we can worship the Lord through reading His Word. So I want to start a little different tonight, um, and, uh, and I want everybody to close their eyes, and I want you to just listen to God's Word, and I pray that it would be a worshipful listening, that you would be the purpose for closing your eyes is that you would just stay focused and listen to the words that the Lord has given us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That was Psalm 103. And you may be wondering to yourself, well, Joseph, why would you read another psalm when the book of Hebrews quotes from the Psalms all the time. There's a lot of Psalms. Um, well, it's because as I was studying through these five verses tonight in Hebrews chapter two, verses five through nine, the Lord continually kept bringing back Psalm 103 to my mind. And so it, it, it came up over and over again, and it just led me to worship as I was studying this. And this, this is a, Hebrews is a complex book. I've never studied Hebrews in depth like this before, and it's a, it's a, a mysterious book, a complex book, but it, just, it should lead us to worship the Lord, and, and that is the whole goal of this sermon, is that we would move out of this place, leave this place tonight with a changed perspective and worshiping Jesus more. That's, that's the goal, um, and so I, I, I pray, and my prayer for us, for myself, and, and for everybody um, over the past few weeks has been that we would worship the Lord with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, that we would worship Jesus 
as we're leaving this place tonight because of these five verses we're going to study. So let's pray before we read the five verses. Father, we come before you tonight opening your word, humbling ourselves before you, and coming underneath your authority. God, we need to hear from you. We, we need you to speak to us. As Spencer prayed, we need you, Holy Spirit, to speak, but also we need you to open up the eyes and the ears of our hearts and our minds so that we might see and hear what you alone want us to see and hear, that you would enlighten us, oh God, and, and enliven us, that we would worship you more because we've heard from your word tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first, um, these are the five verses after Brody preached the first four verses in Hebrews chapter two. Look at your Bibles together. Should be on the screen. We're gonna cover a lot tonight. I'm gonna read a lot. I'm gonna go pretty f quick because we're gonna cover a lot, but we got a lot of stuff on the screen for you to follow along. So Hebrews two, starting in verse five. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the author of Hebrews makes a shift here from the first four verses, right? In the, in the first four verses, he, he was giving us a warning, an admonition, if you will, and now he's, he's shifting to exposition. He, he picks back up um, with quotations from the Psalms and, and a continuity of thought from chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 5 through 13, he was comparing and contrasting how Jesus is superior to the angels. He's picking back up with that thought right now. So if you're a note taker, the outline of these verses is pretty simple. It's just two parts. Uh, verses 5 through 8a is the introduction and the quotation. He's going to be quoting Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And then the second part is 8b through 9, which is the interpretation of what he just quoted. Uh, and so he's going to give the meaning of, of the psalm. And so there's two perspectives for these verses. You can read it from man's perspective, or you can read it from God's perspective. And I propose that we would move from man's perspective to God's tonight, and we're going to see that as we work through these texts together. So starting with verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So the ancient Hebrews believed that God gave the world to angels to rule, but as we see, it's being cleared up by the preacher of Hebrews. Last week, Brody was talking about, um, I was going to talk a lot about angels this week. I'm not really, because Brody did an excellent job of explaining who are angels, what's their purpose, why did God create them, right? And as you heard in Psalm 103, like, they're mighty, and they're to do God's word. They obey his voice, right? They're ministers. And we know from reading through the scriptures that they're terrifyingly awesome creatures, right? They're, they're frightful yet wonderful. They're messengers. They're warriors sent to comfort and protect God's people, which is awesome. I'll never forget this incredible story. Um, when I was in high school, uh, a young lady uh, came to me, and, she, and I had just become a follower of Christ. I was a senior in high school, and she was like, you have to meet this young lady. And uh, her name was Lydia, and she had an incredible testimony. Everybody's testimony is incredible. This one's crazy, and you'll understand why after I tell it. Um, in brief, Lydia grew up a witch. 
all right? And, and she was involved with um, Satanism, worshiping Satan. She would go to parties where they did things that you shouldn't even talk about, um, from drinking blood to a lot of different very strange practices um, to worship Satan, to, to submit to Satan, all right? And, and so she was involved in some super deep, dark things. One night, she was at one of these parties, and uh, the leaders of, uh, of the party brought in a, a young lady, and they started beating her. And the reason they were beating her is because she was a follower of Jesus. And they were trying to get her to submit to Satan and to reject Jesus. They were trying to get her to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and to submit to Satan, to, to reject the faith. And she refused to do so. And she held her allegiance to Christ and she loved them and she shared the love of Christ to them as they were beating her. And Lydia observed this. She left and she was troubled, greatly troubled. And she went home and she was like, how could this be? Is it possible that the God who I thought didn't exist, that this young lady would, would stand up for her faith so strongly? Is it true? God, are you real? Do you exist? And, she's, and, and so she came up with this idea and she went and got her dad's gun. And, and she, she went to her room, which happened to have a window that went out to the roof of her house. She opened the window and went to the roof of her house with her dad's gun. And she said, God, if you're real, she said, I want to believe you, but I don't believe you. And I want to know if you're real. Then don't let this happen. And she put the gun to her head and she pulled the trigger and it said, click. And she pointed it in the sky and pulled the trigger and it, and it went off perfectly fine. She went on to do that two more times. And she lived. And she surrendered her life to Christ right there on that roof. She went into her home, and she immediately was met with spiritual warfare from the enemy. And this girl, this young lady went on to, to go with us to a mission trip to Chicago. And, and in Chicago, I wouldn't recommend going to an inner city uh, uh, city like Chicago on a mission trip with a couple hundred um, kids from a youth group. Uh, but there we are singing worship songs to the Lord, praising the Lord in inner city Chicago, sharing the gospel. And uh, one, one night after um, we, we got done singing, Lydia shared that she said while we were singing, she said she saw a host of angels that were guarding and protecting the choir from enemy forces that were trying to get in. Now, I know that this is crazy, right? It's spectacular. It's, it's hard to believe. But the, the unseen world, as Christians, we believe some crazy things. The unseen world is just as real as what is tangible, what we can see, taste, touch, feel. The unseen world is just as real. Demons and angels are just as real. And, and, and the angels are for us, from God, sent to us to comfort and, and protect and care for us. And so when it says for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, that's kind of a big deal because they're a big deal. And so God's saying it's not the world, the, the ruling of the world's not for angels. Okay, so who's it for? The, the world to come of which we're speaking. That's the, the future, the new heaven and new earth, right? And, and, and so is it for, who's it for? Is it for Jesus? Is it for man? Who's it for? That, that word subjected in the Greek is hupotasso, and, and it means this. It has a military and a non-military meaning. It's extremely important because it's written four times in five verses, okay? It, it means to arrange under the command of a leader or to subordinate, to submit to one's control or yield or obey. And so in verse 5, it's telling us that God didn't intend the world to be submitted to angels, 
And that's why the preacher said earlier that we shouldn't neglect such a great salvation. In the first four verses of, of chapter 2, it's not only our hope now in the world to come, but the world to come will be ruled by God's redeemed, not angels. He uses Psalm 8 to explain God's original intention for man, but the problem is man has failed to fulfill God's creation mandate. So look at verse 6. It says, it's been testified somewhere. Now remember, this is a sermon, okay? So the preacher of Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament. He knows David wrote Psalm 8, but he doesn't use David's name as the author of Psalm 8 because he wants his audience to be focused on the reality that this is God's word, that the Holy Spirit is speaking. It's not about who wrote it down, who actually penned it, but this is God's word. Listen to God's word. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And so the psalmist started this psalm by, by praising God for his, his majesty, his breathtaking beauty and creation and his power, that he, he made everything. And, and when we contemplate these things, like, and you compare them to us, it's, we, have, we are insignificant, seemingly, in comparison to the cosmos. One of my friends texted me this year and said that this year I'm going to start all of my, my personal times with the Lord by reading a psalm. And so they got to Psalm 8, and while they're reading, I, when I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? They were reading that, and while they were reading that, they were picking their nose. And they were like, oh, so now I have this picture of what God does with his fingers and what I do with mine. Right, like what a contrast. This is, this is crazy. It's an incredible contrast. Have you ever walked outside on a, a night where it's just clear sky, super starry, the moon's massive, and just stared at the sky in awe? Um, every December, me and my brother take our sons on a camping trip. It's my nephew's birthday. And, uh, and so after Christmas, we always go. He's got some property in North Wilkesboro. So we always go up there on the mountain. And um, so a few weeks ago, we were up there, and we went on a night hike. Uh, we took the boys on a night hike, and when we got to the top of the mountain, a clearing, we laid down, and we, we were just quiet. And it was a still night. You can't hear anything out there. And, and the, the stars were just out there in vast array. And we were quiet for a while, and then my brother asked this question. He said, boys, what, is it, what does this make you feel like? What are you thinking right now when you look up in the vastness of the night sky? And one of them said, I, f I feel like a flea on the back of a rhino. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a decent comparison. But like, even smaller than that are we in this vast cosmos, right? So you can understand how the psalmist is saying, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth when he's staring at the night sky. And then how in Psalm 8, in verse 4, that's why I was reminded of Psalm 103 when he says, he knows our frame. He remembers that we're just dust. What is man, oh God? We're not angels. We're dust. And yet, he has compassion on us. And David the psalmist wrote this. He wrote Psalm 8 not with Jesus in mind, but with God's intention for man in mind. David knew his Bible well. So while writing Psalm 8, he was thinking about the first Adam. He didn't know about the last Adam. He knew the truth, right? And in verses 7 and 8, it says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. 
You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So mankind was made to live briefly a little while, right? All of our lives are short, just a mist. A little while lower than angels, not on, on the earth, uh, like on this earth and not in heaven. We were made to live on the earth briefly and mankind is crowned. We're the crown of God's creation. We learned that in Genesis. Like we were the only beings that God created in his image, therefore with glory and honor. And David is thinking about Genesis 1:26, when God first created Adam and Eve, and he gave them a command, and he said, rule in the garden, reign over creation. How? As God's kingly representative. That's the destiny of man. Right? David knew that God created mankind to take dominion over God's created order, but David didn't know, and he couldn't have known, that Jesus is the messianic fulfillment of this psalm, right? In Ephesians 1, 22, we get Paul's perspective on the other side of the cross when he says, and he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet and gave him, Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church, right? And so there's a slight debate as to who the preacher in Hebrews is talking about. In these verses, is he talking about man or is he talking about Jesus? Or is it both? Could he be talking about both of them? I personally believe that it's both. I believe the psalmist was talking about the first Adam and the preacher of Hebrews is interpreting it as the last Adam using a Christological lens. And so the destiny of man is fulfilled in the God-man, namely Jesus, which we're going to see later. And he sees, he uses the destiny of man as designed by God in Genesis and the Psalms to emphasize the frailty and fallenness of man in the present time. So he uses the Old Testament argument for man and moves to a New Testament revelation of the God-man. The humanity of Jesus is just as important as the divinity of Jesus, right? Both of these are important Christian doctrines. You wouldn't have the work of Christ without the person of Christ, and so, if you read verses 7 and 8 with a Christological lens, and not just anthropologically, I know that's a really big word, but that just means that it's not just about humanity, that Jesus represents all of humanity. So here's the outline for Jesus from Psalm 8. Incarnation and humiliation, that's where God not only speaking, but came into the flesh on the earth. This happened in the past. And then you have the exaltation in verse 7b where Jesus is now sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the present situation. And then verse 8a, the final triumph. And this is where everybody and everything will bow down to his authority. That's the future. Hasn't happened yet. Above, ab about the, the Psalm 8, Richard Phillips in his Reformed Expository Commentary says this. On one hand, there is man captured in the darkness of his paradise, lost. And then onto the stage, God sends his own son, the new man in the second Adam. He's the answer both to man's problem and to the problem of history. He's the great, the last, the only hope of a dying race. In him is the fulfillment, not only of man's promised destiny, but of God's plan as set forth in Psalm 8. And so the preacher of Hebrews moves from quotation to interpretation, from verse 8a to verse 8b. So he stops quoting and he starts commenting. Look at it. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control at present. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So is the him 
quote-unquote, in this verse? Is it referring to man or is it referring to Jesus? And so I wrestled with this. I studied it. I wrestled with it. I debated with myself and commentaries and other sermons and other people about this for a long time. And I think that it's man in verse 8b. And here's why. Because Genesis and Psalms are pointing to the reality that God created man to rule creation. And the lordship of man, and the lordship that man was given over creation by God was thorough, not, nothing was to be outside of his control, kind of like what we just sang about tonight. But, but herein lies the problem. We are living in paradise lost. The fall of man was great. Man clearly is not in control, and everything is clearly not in subjection to us, right? So this verse holds for us this kind of already but not yet tension, we are already, maybe you've heard of that phraseology before, already but not yet. All right, so, so here's some examples. We're already saved and being sanctified, but not yet glorified. We will reign with King Jesus. We in Christ are already free from the penalty and the power of sin, but we are not yet free from the presence of sin, but we will be in the kingdom to come. We are already part of the body of Christ, the church, but not yet the perfectly pure, united bride of Christ. But the bride and the groom, the church and Jesus, will be together forever in the world to come. We're already given victory over Satan because of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. But Satan is not yet fully squashed as he will be in the time to come. That's the final triumph. So when the preacher says now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control, he's referring to what already happened in the past when God created man. Humans were created by God as his image bearer, crowned with glory and honor, and given dominion on the earth. But in our present situation on this earth, in this world right now, we don't see everything submitting to man. And that's an understatement, right? And now if you read Psalm 8 with a Christological lens, you don't, lose, you don't see everything and everyone submitting and willingly bowing down to Jesus either yet. Right? The original audience was experiencing persecution and could attest to this reality as well. Everything's not submitting to Jesus either. Everyone's not submitting to Jesus either. Because we live in the right now, in the at present and that's why the preacher says, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Everything and everyone is under the curse as a result of the fall of man. And so everything and everyone is leaning towards decay and ends in death. Now, man's creation and fall are the already truths of reality. But man's future reign with Christ is the but not yet hope of the future. Jesus' humiliation and exaltation are already truths of reality. Now, the consummation of his rule and reign is the not yet hope of the future. So Jesus is already the rightful ruler of all, but all do not yet acknowledge his sovereignty. We know that to be true, right? Therefore, and this is key for us, we must rest in the already and hope for the not yet. We must rest in the already and, and hope for the not yet to come when everything and everyone will bow in submission to him. But at present, he's being very patient. Why? So that more might come to know him. That people would move from seeing man's problem to seeing God's solution. And that's where verse 9 is huge in this change in perspective for us. 
because the preacher of Hebrews is very clear when he makes this transition. Look at it with me. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So I think the him in verse 8 is man, and the him in verse 9 is Jesus. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews says specifically, namely Jesus. This is the first time in this entire book that the preacher uses the proper name Jesus. Every other time, he's referred to as the Son of God. And so that's why in the first chapter, we're focusing on his majestic supremacy as the divine Son of God. But now, he intentionally uses the name Jesus to invoke thoughts of this is the one who was born into the world. This is God took on flesh. This is the creator of dust who put on dust and dwelt among us in order to solve our problems. This is Jesus who came into humanity in order to die for humanity, to taste death because God could not die so that we might have life. William Lane says this, the preacher leads us to contemplate Jesus in his solidarity with the human family. The exalted son of God made the human condition and especially its liability to death his own in order to achieve for them the glorious destiny designed by God because he knew we couldn't do it. The phrase, for a little while, for a little while he's made lower than the angels, brings to mind Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it describes Jesus' humility, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, the Word made flesh to dwell among us. He took on flesh to be like us so that he could serve as a perfect sacrifice for us. So Jesus' magnificence is described in the first chapter of Hebrews, and it's so magnified that the, the author comes back to it and says, I don't want you to think that he's so like, magnificent, that he's so supreme, that he's so sovereign, that he's so other, that you can't relate to him. And so that's why he brings in this quotation and says, hey, he's fully God, yes, we should worship him. He's fully man, yes, and we should worship him. As I can't say this guy's name. Adrio Cognac, that's my best guess. He said in his book, Christ Above All, this is what he says, and I quote, far from Christ's humanity detracting from his magnificence, it enhances it. He's bigger than we thought, fully divine and fully human. This should give us great confidence in approaching him in prayer and with any concerns we may have. Go to him, trust him. He understands because he's fully human and he can help because he's gloriously divine. I love that. That's awesome. Go to him. Trust him because he can help and he understands. Jesus teaches us how to walk through this life. He teaches us how to walk through trials, through suffering, through pain, through loss. He shows us a, a trust God and hold to him at all costs kind of faith in this life right now. And in verse 9, the first part of verse 9 is connected to the last part. It says, we see the one who is made a little lower than the angels, Jesus, dealing triumphantly with death on our behalf. All of this happened by the grace of God. 
so that we could worship him along with the psalmist and say, he doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. He doesn't repay me according to my iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. All because of God's gracious generosity. Jesus died in our place. And by his grace, he forgives, heals, redeems, and showers us with love and mercy. We must remember the superiority of Jesus. And that he's the solution to all of our problems. And that would lead us to saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. That we would worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when the preacher of the Hebrews tells his audience, but we see him. This is a massively important conjunction used to signify the transition from focusing on man and his problems to focusing on Jesus specifically. But we see him. F.F. Bruce says, we do not see man exercising his God-given right as Lord of creation, but we do see God's man, Jesus, investing, invested with universal sovereignty. And so, as a point of application, I ask, do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus rightly? Fully God, fully man, just as he didn't devoid himself of any of his godness when he put on flesh, he didn't devoid himself of any of his humanity when he rose from the grave physically and ascended back to heaven and is sitting physically divine on his throne in heaven as the victorious God-man. Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of Man is the federal head of the human race. So once again, do you see him? Do you see Jesus? Do you have a Christ-centered perspective as you walk through pain and suffering in this life? Do you remember that Jesus walked through pain and suffering way more than we will ever experience? Do we see that? Do we remember that? What do we see more? Do we see more of man's problems or do we see more of God's solution? Do you see Jesus? Are you gazing at Jesus? Because when we do that, our perspective changes. When we gaze at the cross, our perspective changes. You can't be prideful when you look at the cross. When we see Jesus, we see other people differently. It changes the way we live. Because when we see Jesus and how he lived and he died, it changes the way we live right now. I thought the phrasing that the, the preacher used is, is pretty interesting. Jesus tasted death. Jesus tasted death. Back in November, I, I took my boys. Um, we had a, a man weekend, and we went camping, and, uh, and we took our kayaks. November is freezing. We went to Lake Chatug. It was just me, Titus, and Case, and, uh, and we went out there, and I was like, guys, we're going we're gonna to go. We're going to get on the lake. There was no one else out there, not a soul, and so we kayak out to this island. We got out and we explore on the island and uh, we were a little tired. You know, it was freezing outside. Um, not freezing enough to where you could walk on the lake yet. Uh, and so I was like, hey, y'all, we should jump in. And they were like, you're an idiot. And I was like, no, we should do it. Like, it's awesome. I was like, this is the only time that we're going to be here when, when I'm this age and you're this age. Like, we should do it. This would be awesome. And they were like, no, it's freezing. And I was like, yes, we're going to do it. And I was like, they're not going to do it. And so I was like, I need to do it first. 
And so I got them hyped up as much as I could, and then I just plunged myself below the freezing cold lakey water of Lake Chateau. And I jumped up, and I was like, "Woo!" I was like, that was awesome. And they were like, you're an idiot. And, and, and so I started um, splashing them with water, and they started crying. And I was like, jump in. Like, do it. Jump in. And I finally coached them to jumping in. Right? But I had to do it first. I had to taste the coldness of the water first before they would even think about doing it. Because of God's grace, Jesus tasted death in our place before us. Jesus is our substitute, and we should live our lives in worshipful submission to him. And as we are in the first Adam, we experience the consequences of sin and death. We will die. And as we're in the last Adam, we experience no condemnation of sin. We will rise victoriously. Al Mohler said this, the first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death. The last Adam, Jesus, was plunged into death for the sake of humanity. The work of the last Adam undoes the work of the first Adam. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Our sin drove us into all of humanity's problems. Your sin drove you into all of your problems. Jesus dove into our problems in order to bring about God's solution. We must look to him and see him rightly. We must rely on him. We must worship him because he tasted death for us. And so we are in an in-between time and already but not yet. The enemy death still haunts this world. The sting of death has already been defeated but not yet fully taken away. Life is hard. Pain is frequent. Tears are common. But we look to Jesus. Hebrews 2, 9 says, but we see him. Do you see him? Do you see the God-man, the one who overcame sin and death in your place? Do you see that he understands you, that he knows where you are, he knows where you're going Again, last quote before we close. Richard Phillips says, Jesus is the new Adam of the new creation. What Adam lost, he has regained. All who are found in him through faith will partake of the new humanities, reclaim glory, honor, and dominion. We see Jesus. This is the aim of the book of Hebrews from start to finish, to show us Jesus as the answer, the one who reclaims what mankind was created to be and do. Jesus understands our suffering. Jesus understands our pain, rejection, loneliness, abandonment, weeping, temptations, and yes, even death. He already walked through it all for us, even though we have not yet experienced it all. And when we have a Christ-centered perspective, when we gaze at Jesus, this wonderful, mysterious God-man, we will worship him in the midst of life's storms. No matter what comes our way, we can say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. He truly is superior to everything and everyone. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you because you are worthy to be worshiped. There is no one like you. You're incomprehensible. Father, 
We praise you for this amazing plan that was set forth before time began. That you knew that we would fall. That you had already planned to bring about your solution to man's problem. And we praise you, Jesus, for coming and entering into this dust of existence. We praise you because you know what it's like. You understand everything that every person in this room is walking through, has walked through, and will walk through. I pray that we would go to you, that we would trust you, that we would look to you, that we wouldn't be so fixed on our own problems and the problems in this world and our culture and our society that we would miss you, Jesus. I pray that we would see you as you truly are, fully God, fully man, fully capable of redeeming, saving, sanctifying, purifying a people for yourself who are ready to worship you with our all and to tell others of the great salvation that you have given to us and the freedom that we have in Christ alone. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.